0: Thank you for joining this podcast. The Reuters Institute 2020 Digital News Report is the most authoritative study of news consumption in the world today. Currently in its ninth year, the report has a powerful track record of predicting trends and examining the way people around the world read and absorb their news. Today, we teamed up with the Reuters Institute to launch this year's report. The highlights, a surge in the demand for trustworthy and reliable sources in light of COVID-19, a continuing desire for objective news, less opinion, more facts, and a call out to domestic politicians for being cited as the primary source of misinformation. You can find the full report and further details of the study on our website, edelman.co.uk. And so to our panel, we were joined by Emma Tucker, Editor of the Sunday Times, Deborah toness, President of NBC News International, and James Mitchinson, Editor of the Yorkshire Post. Let's start with, obviously, the, the, the biggest story ever, uh, COVID. Um, Emma, can I ask you first um, about what it's been like for, uh, from a journalistic perspective covering this story? I mean, the Sunday Times has driven a lot of the big investigative kind of TikToks um, on this. What's it been like as a journalist? and moreover, how has your journalistic treatment of the story driven news subscribers?
1: Well, I think um, our approach is very much everything that's been we've talked about already in this presentation, which was there was clearly, this was a story like no other, and there was clearly an enormous hunger for uh, non, you know, clear, distinct, fact-based uh, reports on what was going on in, in frankly, in an area that was, where there were so many unknowns. So I think there came a point where you know, we ourselves were saying, you know, what the what the hell's going on? What the hell was going on in in February? What what was what exactly is happening? And uh, uh, I think we took a decision to to take the story. You know, I'm lucky enough to have we're lucky at the Sunday Times to have at our disposal the Insight Team. So to take the story out of Westminster, as it were, because whilst there was a big political story, there was a sort of bigger, deeper story, handed over to the Insight team and let them do what they do normally on very different um, subject matters. And uh, through their process of very, very detailed reporting, uh, bringing together, I mean, the joke is, a lot of the stuff that was in the first Insight piece, uh, not a whole lot of it was new. Most of it was already out there, but what they did was that valuable um, journalistic um, thing, which was to bring it all together, put it in context, work out the timeline, report hard around the detail, and then come up with a, a very, very um, distinctive version of what happened. And I'll be honest, I was it was a good piece of journalism, but I was I was taken aback by quite how well it landed
0: and did it did did you see that it drove new subscribers to the paper
1: yes very much so it 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 led to a huge um increase in subscriptions and um uh, you know and and the feedback we got there was it because it was giving people something distinctive that they couldn't read elsewhere but the really good news about it was that many of the subscribers that came in have stayed with us um, because uh i think at the moment there's a particular hunger for the sort of detailed considered journalism we give them so the the churn rates um have been very encouraging and and deborah
0: uh, journalistically from a broadcast perspective this is an unbelievably difficult story to cover logistically right what's it been like and moreover are there lessons from the way that your teams have covered the pandemic that might shape how you do broadcast news in the future?
2: Yeah, I, I would first point rather to the challenges than to the opportunities that have come out of this. Um, and I think you know, the report itself does point to um, something of a renewal of vows between the audience and the traditional, what we call legacy media brands in, in the US market. Um, and that, that sort of coming back together in a moment when Um, as Emma was saying, in a moment of crisis, you really need to go to a place where you really trust what you're getting. Um, Organisations that have got the resources to deliver verified news from large teams of people. Um, And I think this coming back to the the more traditional uh, broadcast brands um, is really good news. In the report, I noticed, um, to quote, it says, um, it's a real, but almost certainly temporary surge in reliance of trusted media brands on television. Well, the almost certainly temporary bit is down to us, isn't it? How do we um, keep hold uh, of this newfound connectivity, reliance and trust? Um, How must we adapt and evolve to remind people of why they kind of used to love us a lot and then started drifting away to maintain this this new connection we have with them? I think so therefore, I mean, I think we can talk later about some of the things I think we can do to to, to keep hold of of this sort of surge. Um, Another area that you pointed to, obviously, um, television news is heavily logistic based um, and in a world where people can't work together. um, You can't be in studios and control rooms, um, all that back end stuff that's invisible to the audience, but, but critical to us to make our product has actually, you know, one of my favorite expressions is necessity is the mother of invention. And, and so it came to pass. And overnight, when we had to empty, you know, 30 Rockefeller Plaza is our sort of mothership. There are two and a half thousand people in there any given day, driving all of our platforms. Um, we got 90% of our working community based from home, including many of our control room and studio functions. So we've got people, working remotely, driving those technical functions on on laptops, working together via connectivity platforms like Zoom. Um, and it has driven a revolution. It, is a, it was an overnight COVID technology revolution. Um, and I think that our industry will never be the same again. We also, for example, um, my team here in the UK, looking more at the global story, launched a show in a day on zoom which has now become a daily show called the global hangout we hacked the zoom platform early on before they they'd they'd created more flexibility to actually make a show in it with multiple participants Um, it is possible that would have taken six months to plan and execute before but we just did it Uh, um, and i think you know if we are to sort of yet again not, not waste this crisis how do we not go all the way backwards before we move forwards uh, and when it's over. And I think the other point about the journalism is what we've seen uh, is people need higher levels of transparency in our journalism and they want to know the forensics. And I think that's what is going to build trust. They want to know, every piece of detail so they can understand that what you're saying is true. Break it down for me. And I think that is shining a light if we didn't know it already towards the future path we must take, which is all about, tell me not just what you know, but how you know it and be transparent about what you don't know. And that way we can forge a more meaningful relationship in the future with our audiences.
0: So, so, um, James, we've heard a global perspective there from Deborah, and obviously the extraordinary logistics of uh, of really, you know, stripping out an entire newsroom and moving on, on online. We've heard from Emma a, um, a, a national focus about how she mobilised her investigative team to tell this story. I mean, the thing about the pandemic is it's both an amazing global story, but also an extraordinary local story. How have you been treating this story, and how is it different to how the nationals have been treating it?
3: Um, Yeah, good morning. Um, I guess for the local titles, it's not a story. Um, It's thousands and thousands of stories because we operate at a familial level, if you like. So um, I do sometimes feel as though some nationals, not all of them, I have to say, um, fall into the trap of commoditizing people and commoditizing the stories in, in a way that dehumanizes people. And because we are residents of the places and the communities we serve, and, and I mean that in terms of the title as well as the journalists, um, it's it's more incumbent upon us to be responsible, constructive members of that community. Um, a couple of examples, um, ordinarily death notices would sit at the back end of a local newspaper, they'd be in the classified section, they'd be paid for. Um, I took a decision to allow those obituaries, pen portraits of people who pass away or into coronavirus to be free of charge. Um, And we discovered, um, quite by serendipity really, that because families were unable to have proper funerals, a limited number of mourners, um, some people were being buried with nobody present. Um, The local newspaper became part of the closure, part of the cathartic process that people have through grieving. And we had so many letters of thanks from people saying it it was it was really um, it was just so nice to be able to talk about our loved ones in a way that um, we we might not otherwise have gotten the chance to. And they've saved those obituaries as mementos, as keepsakes of of their loved ones lost lives so operating at a familial level at the family level is something that we were very very keen to do um, in this crisis um another little example of them you know something that a local paper might do and a national might not um, we ran a, a photograph of two nhs workers in scrubs and um, didn't know who they were the image was shot for the front page by an agency so i didn't know who the ladies were um, i took to twitter to ask twitter if they could identify who they were, help me to find them. Um, and once we did find them and we very quickly found them, that's, that's the power of social media these days. I wrote them a letter and sent them some flowers just saying that the whole world sees the effort they're putting in, the sacrifice they're making. Um, and we could see how exhausted these two ladies were. Um, when they got the, the letter and the flowers, which I, I, I wrote um, and asked them to pass on to their colleagues as well, um uh, they, they wrote back to me to tell me that they and their friends and their family and their colleagues were in floods of tears and it meant so much to them that people could see what they were giving up they could see what they were putting in to keeping all of us safe um that that's why we get out of bed and do the job in in regional journalism
0: so it's very that's a very very powerful story um James, of the connection that media can have at a local level, is quite remarkable, actually. But you also, I know um, from you know hearing you give interviews in the past, and from reading the paper as well, you also look at a national level and you cover politics in a fairly um, you know robust and lively way. And you've had a pretty lively relationship with government as well. What do your what do your readers think when actually you're journalists and actually sometimes your leader uh leaders and editorials are quite critical of the government's handling of that
3: how how have readers responded to that yeah um we don't give the government a hard time for the sake of it we try to be constructive every step of the way um prime ministers i've met four prime ministers while i've been at the yorkshire post i think um they they come and go so quickly these days um Prime Minister's always come to the Yorkshire Post, and regardless of the party, we try to be a critical friend. Um, in terms of how the audience reacts when we're critical of government, um, you know, it depends which audience, actually. So the older, more dyed in the wall traditional reader, probably print, um, they can get quite offended uh, when we're critical of government. Um they um, are often more partisan. They think along partisan lines. They vote conservative because mum and dad voted conservative because granddad voted conservative. Um, and, you know, they, they've written to me to say, um, tone it down, Yorkshire Post, tone it down, James. The government should not have to deal with tricky questions from the likes of you while it's dealing with a global pandemic on an unprecedented scale. You know, give, cut them some slack, give them some space um they're a, they're a much more deferential bunch frankly when it comes to the government and then there's the newly emboldened um more inquisitive um better informed i think audience um they are more promiscuous in terms of their media loyalty um so they don't necessarily have an affinity with one brand they will they will scan various sources uh, and triangulate their views in a much more critical way um, and they want the difficult questions asking them, and you know they don't they don't let go until they get the answers that satisfies the curiosity. Um, so those people um, they are becoming a much more influential part of the commissioning process actually um, because they won't be duped and they're much more savvy to misinformation um, and I think the publishers that embrace that inquisitiveness and they embrace the levels of engagement that are possible if you speak to these people, um, I think those publishers are going to be the, the ones that succeed. So, uh, Emma, I've got to ask you on the, uh, the, a similar
0: question, actually. I mean, you have, you've had two inside pieces that have been these extraordinary kind of moment by moment, day by day exposition of government decision making. The last one. I think when we were talking yesterday, you said it was a 6,000-word commission. Absolutely a huge undertaking. Um, James has described how the readers respond. How does, I've got to ask you, how does government respond to that kind of journalism?
1: Well, um, the government has clearly taken a decision to take a very aggressive um, stance, not just to the reports that we've done, but to similar reports in, the, in, other, in other papers. So they've, they've developed this new this tactic of coming back very swiftly and very aggressively by issuing these um, rebuttals, um, they did it to the, the FT, did a big investigation into ventilators, uh, the Manchester Evening News I think it was got a similar treatment um, for a, a story that they did on homelessness, and in our case, um, I think before the e- we, we published the first insight story at six o'clock in the evening, and by midnight the government had issued a 2,000 word rebuttal to the story. Now um, it was it was interesting because uh, and, and actually to Deborah's point about um, transparency, this almost gave us an opportunity to sort of out transparency then because we simply took the rebuttal. We, we went through it, and we, we made a decision to wait a week and then publish our response to that proposal, which actually gave us an opportunity to be very transparent. Um, we went through it line by line. As it turned out, we had made one factual error, which we had already corrected, and this was to do with the, the number of Fridays in January. I think we called a particular Friday the fourth Friday. It was actually the fifth Friday. Um, we actually did get the date right, but that was the only factual error that that was in the rebuttal. And the interesting thing about the government rebuttal, when you went through it, was they clearly hadn't put their finest minds on it. It was not a very convincing rebuttal, but they had obviously just taken a decision to get it out there to try and kill the story and to stop other people following following us up. Um, but as I say, you know, by by us then going through it line by line, it did give us an opportunity, I think, to to defend our journalism um, to the point that that. Um, James was making about audiences. There, is a, there are Sunday Times readers who somehow or other think that we are being um, unpatriotic in uh, writing, doing this sort of uh, forensic reporting. But often, you know, when I go back to them, I say, but, but you wouldn't want us not to ask these questions, would you? They, they then agree. So I, I, I think, just, just as James said, that the readers are genuinely divided. There are those who really, really appreciate it, those who think there's something somehow unpatriotic about it. But overall, um, when challenged, I think, you know, Sunday Times readers appreciate that this is something that we should be doing.
0: Can I slightly um, change gear and talk about another big um, theme, which is the kind of duality of reader empowerment. I mean, James, talks a little bit about that, and and, and you've just touched on it as well. But alongside, you know, that that is really just kind of shaping and influencing coverage, but also employee emboldenment, employees putting pressure on editors in respect to editorial decisions, tone, point of view, that kind of thing. I wonder, Deborah, actually, can I come to you first? How do you maintain impartiality on screen? with reporters, when you've got perhaps younger reporters who feel quite passionately about a particular issue. and By passionate, I mean perhaps they're tweeting uh, about it or they're attending events and so on. How do you think about this issue about maintaining impartiality on the screen
2: now? I think we need young, informed, bright, passionate people to come into our industry. Um, That's our pipeline. And I think, I do think we've been holding back this tide for some time now, and that sort of recent events have forced us to address this and to begin to deal with it. And I, and I, and I think this is going to be a continually evolving story. But I think the headline is, um, we now employ um, many, many people in our newsrooms who don't feel comfortable leaving their personal beliefs and values at the door. And... Um, you know it was up until fairly recently um, the norm that one could say okay well these are the values of the organization um, and 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 therefore you have personal beliefs and you can tweet but 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 not on our time and not on our platforms but the blurring of those lines and I think the the sort of the authenticity now that says you can't be one person in one place another in another place it no longer works. And we've got to find a way through this and a solution to this, um, because otherwise we're going to lose people and they won't come into the industry. Um, we already know the importance of, of our brand and our values to, to attract younger generations. If they, if they don't believe in what you're doing and what you stand for, they won't come, just like they won't buy your brand if you don't stand for something more today. I think the sort of the Black Lives Matter movement um, has raised interesting questions but is less of an issue because it's a human rights issue. There's no question of you know the rights and wrongs or a debatable you know which side are you on. It's a human rights issue that has come to the fore out of COVID. Um, and yes, we we do have um, you know people working with us who feel very passionately who are impacted by the issues um, that are being discussed today and feel it is it, it is a need for them to express themselves, um, but then also to report on it. Um, as an organisation, what we've said is, um, our guidelines are, use your journalism, use you, you, use use your platforms and use our platforms as a place where you can have your impact and reach millions of people with your message. Um, and, and, you know, going to march, going to protest, well, the guidelines are, it would be better if you use your journalism rather than actually go and participate, you know. because that could lead some people to question, you know, what your engagements are outside the office. Uh, and obviously, there are some forces who are trying to uh, hijack those those protests. So that's where you enter into a zone of danger, um, and and where you potentially expose your brand. But I, I do think this is very new.
4: Um,
2: it's new that we need to deal with it. Um, and I don't have all the answers, but I certainly think we're making good progress with our team.
0: Yeah, Emma, how do you see it how, as as an editor? If you're leading a cohort of younger. Journalists who see their role perhaps differently to that of, you know, certainly when when I started journalism in the 90s, it was very, very clear what the role of journalism is. How 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 are you managing that now?
1: I think it's it's definitely true um, that the the younger cohort, there is a desire they want to work for organizations that align with their values. Yeah. And I think there really genuinely is a difference between people. There, I say, it, of our age, um, who perhaps have a more realistic, or, or went into journalism with a more realistic take on the world, and yeah. a younger, more a younger crowd that is less willing to uh, to perhaps, you know, to take a totally, be entirely realistic. Um, it is. I think it is a really big challenge for us, and I think the answer has to be to double down on journalistic value. So to double down on what we what we do you know the 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 commitment we bring to uh, impartial reporting and checking the facts uh using different sources you know quality journalism i think that has to be the way that we get through this because otherwise i think and, and you know we have to educate you know make sure that the people who come understand those values and i think there is a you know there's genuinely a risk that if you don't you could end up with a sort of journalistic group thing where People at the top are worried about commissioning articles around certain subject matters for fear of what the younger cohort might say. But if you if you always go back to first principles um, and point things out and point out facts and, and you know make sure that you're you're sticking to to what core core values, then I think you can construct an argument and bring people along with you. Um, but uh, so that's around the news side. I think on the comment side, it is difficult because obviously you know as a newspaper we like to have a range of voices, you know, to my mind I can run columnists that I don't agree with but that doesn't bother me because I want to be able to offer a diverse diverse range. I think that's a challenge um, for some of the younger people who wouldn't approve of giving platforms to somebody they disagree with but you know again I think that's just, we, we just, I, and I think the danger for us is that we might find certain generations don't want to come and work for us because of the kind of uh, columnists that we employ But i think we just have to be robust about what we stand
0: for there's a lot of questions are coming in about how you rebuild um trust in uh traditional media and certainly in the you know seeing covid how you maintain actually trust levels maybe james you could talk a little bit on that topic i mean you 've already just you know you 've already set out the kind of relationship with your readers, which is familial as you say it's a kind of a, a family level but how how are you thinking about building a trusted relationship beyond the crisis and
3: when we get back to normality um, at risk of repeating what Emma's just said it is about um, journalistic principles and it 's about f- focusing now and going forwards on. Right and wrong rather than left and right, um, so pe- people are um, suspicious of partisanship uh, and increasingly so and I don't think that's going to change so um, focusing on fact based accurate quality journalism is, is is exactly what we need to do and w- we benefit a little bit from that digitally because we have a, uh, a broadsheet format in print still, uh, and some of our longer reads are the ones that have been consumed most. Um, on online um so i think is that that's important in itself but um i do as i said previously think it's important to um to use this new level of interest curiosity and criticism from the readers as, as a 12th player in the dressing room in the conference room and to um think about the, the the readers' increasing stakeholders. So the reader revenue pound is becoming king over the advertising pound, particularly if you think vis-a-vis or versus the, the programmatic revenue pound. And the programmatic revenue or advertising revenue has long been a bit of a benign bedfellow. But the reader revenue pound, with an increasingly curious, increasingly active increasingly vociferous readership and they're not a benign bedfellow they toss and turn all night and they can kick you out of bed at any moment if you get it wrong um the the new york times is is testament to that but you know re re, its op-ed editor so i do i do think that the um again the publishers that embrace this new level of um interest of curiosity of criticism i think if that gets turned into engagement and, and there's a dialogue ensues between those that want to engage whether it's critically or otherwise and those publishers are the ones that are going to have the most success so, uh,
0: thanks now i know um we've got quite a lot of questions coming in and actually i do know in the audience i think we've got um madaf uh chanapa um who's the director of news eco systems development at google we've also got a um, hoping jesper Dow, um, who runs news partnerships um, for a, a mere uh, facebook and um ordinarily um uh, they would be asking questions but maybe I might <laughs> have the privilege of asking perhaps some questions um, to them because one of the topics we were and we'll probably get on to now is the 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 grubby end of this which is the money and how do you um, how do we continue to um, support and create uh, new revenue streams for um, the publishers, um, Madam. I can see you there now. Maybe I'll come to you first. I mean, we, the Australian government, are, are, are sort of working through a piece of legislation um, that proposes that the digital platforms um, would support the publishers through effectively a kind of taxation system. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of lobbying in Australia from the publishers for this to, to happen. Um, is this the model, that, is this the right model that will see the uh, digital platform supporting the publishers or do you think there's an alternative um, model um, that might work better? Madaf, can you hear me? Can you hear me Madaf?
4: I'm sorry, Ed, I don't know if you can hear me, but I cannot hear you Uh your okay. audio cut out when you connected to me. Um, oh. I will mute myself until I can figure this out. Maybe you should go to Jesper okay, no if you problem. can hear me.
0: I'll ask, I'll ask exactly the same question then of Jesper at Facebook. Nod if you can hear me.
5: Yes, I can.
0: Excellent. So t- talk to me about the Australia um, proposal. Uh, are you a supporter or are you a detractor? Is this the way that digital platforms can support the publishers?
5: Well, I think it's uh, a complex issue, as you know, and regulation is something that comes down to individual markets and situations of both media and how a government wants to issue regulation when it comes to that. So generally, I believe that the way forward between uh, players like Google and Facebook and the publishing industry is always better off it is rooted in a business uh, model and not a subsidy or a taxation because ultimately what needs to happen is change and finding ways on how to do business together in a fair way. So uh, no, I don't think that taxation is the right answer. It would simply constitute a constant payment of any sort in any given market, but would not incentivize anything of corporation that could actually drive and build a business that is sustainable to the future.
0: So what's your alternative proposal?
5: Well, what we are doing is that we are supporting publishers in many, many ways in different markets and allow them to reach audiences, drive um, traffic to their pages, and also build revenue on Facebook if they want to. There are also instances where we pay publishers directly for specific content they might build for us and craft for us. Um, that are might or might not be exclusive to Facebook and on top of that we are supporting publishers a lot through a fund that we set up a couple of years ago with 300 million that we've committed to spend on the industry, and when the coronavirus came on, we added another 100 million to support that. And we specifically went to support local news because we feel that these are obviously the most hurting, and they're also most important to local communities to get their information about what happens around them, which is something that we, of course, care deeply about.
0: Uh, M- Madoff, I can see you now. Nord, if you can hear me.
4: I can hear you now. Sorry about Excellent. that.
0: Hooray! The technology works. Um, so, look, we've we've over the last seven years that I've been involved in this. There's been a kind of two, a dance between the uh, digital platforms and the publishers around what is the right model uh, to support journalism. When do you think that's going to be resolved?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. Am I
0: going to keep asking the question each year?
4: Uh, I suspect you will, uh, because I think that the what everyone is looking for is uh, sustainability of journalism. And actually, I think the paths to sustainability are going to be varied and different depending on each individual publisher. We recently, um, because of the COVID crisis, uh, kind of reoriented a lot of our work that we do under our Google News initiative uh, towards an emergency relief fund. And we've been in discussions with for local news organizations, and we've been in discussion with a lot of local news organizations. And one of the things that was kind of a, a scary finding, which was probably obvious to most people, is the real dependence on one business model for local news, which was mainly advertising. If you look at this globally, not only that, but a lot of them weren't even thinking about other revenue streams. And I think what uh, what you're seeing in terms of sustainability is a, uh, a trend towards diversification of revenue streams, multiple revenue streams, um, and a closer connection and engagement with uh, the audience. So I think, you know, uh, Google, uh, we consider ourselves to be part of the ecosystem. We have tools that help with that. We have our ad technologies. We also provide uh, a lot of traffic through search, but I think we're all on that journey towards sustainability.
0: So there's, there's a, there are questions coming in about exactly this point about sustainability. And maybe I can turn to the publishers on this question, perhaps Emma, first. Um, I mean, we've got Times Radio launching um, I- later in the summer. And obviously segmentation is clearly, uh, I mean, we've seen can be a very successful strategy. I wonder how um, News UK are thinking about this question of how you diversify and uh, and generate new types of revenue streams.
1: Well, um, obviously, like everyone, we're thinking about it... um uh, you, uh, you know, all the time, because we all know that if we if, if we continue just to serve the existing, as it were, the traditional Sunday Times audience, we, we have no future. So there's a number of things. There's obviously Times Radio, which, you know, is a really exciting departure for us. As, as far as I know, there's no other newspaper in the world that has its own radio station. So that's, you know, genuine, genuinely exciting, and it's obviously going to provide us, get our brand out to a much, much wider audience. But closer to home, one of the great, uh, you know, one of the things that we've noticed in our efforts to um, develop new audiences is we've had huge success around newsletters in particular. And that's been particularly true throughout the COVID crisis. So um, the the traffic to our newsletters or the the uptake of our newsletters has, has gone up dramatically. But the great thing about the newsletters now is that we can organise them around audiences. So in the past, we would have organized a newsletter around a traditional print section. So you might have had a Sunday Times Magazine newsletter, or you might have had a culture newsletter. Now what we do is we look at the audiences and we say, um, let's do a newsletter around wellness, or let's do a newsletter that's going to appeal to younger readers. Let's do one specifically around Brexit, because that works with global, our global audience. So we're, we're thinking all the time about what we can do close to home, what we can do in the broader sphere, uh, to, to warm up new, new audiences to our brand and and james you you probably were pretty
0: depressed when you saw that stat that five, five, what was it five percent of people in the uk pay for local news god we're a mean lot aren't we we've got this kind of the lowest levels of willingness to pay in the world seemingly um what are you going to do about it
3: yeah, listen. That, that's not necessarily down to the to the audience. You know, we, we have our own part to play in that. We've been um, hesitant, uh, reticent, even to ask people to pay digitally for our content. Um, we've been selling the wrong thing. Frankly, we've been selling advertising space rather than the quality of our of our content. Um, so we are going to move towards um, a more reader focused revenue model. Of course, we are, and I think that will create a more virtuous circle. Um, publishers will be um, looking for and creating content um, for more wholesome reasons. You know the, the clicks for quits business model is seriously flawed and leads publishers to make the wrong decisions when it comes to, to the commissioning process, would be my view. Um, and listen, I, I, I do think there needs to be structural change at, at risk of being accused of being a wistful, hopeless optimist. I, I do think there is scope or some thought to be given to a a responsible publisher's uh, network and and that could be overlaid with a responsible advertisers uh, consortium, if you like, Um, bringing those two things together. What we've just been talking about, about readers and publishers now having to conduct themselves properly, having to behave in ethical, responsible ways in order to keep that trust. Um, It it would just take one significant chief executive with a large advertising spend to say, do you know what, I'm not going to go with a newspaper that celebrates and legitimises domestic abuse of J.K. Rowling. I'm going to go with the newspaper that uh, is pressing the government on returning children to school via the Children's Commissioner in September. Um, If we could bring together a responsible publishers network with a responsible advertising consortium, um, and start to squeeze the publications and the outlets that don't behave in the way that people expect us to, then I think we can make real progress.
0: So we've got a couple of minutes uh, <coughs> left, and I just want to put to you um, one of the questions, which I think is a profound one, and actually a few people have sort of phrased the question slightly differently, but it kind of goes um, like this, and if, we, if you could keep your answers reasonably close, uh, short so we, we can end on time. Um, we've seen an increase in demand for in-depth news, obviously driven by a crisis the likes of which we've never seen before. Are we going to stay there? Are we going to maintain that level of in-depth interest in news? And if we are, what do we need to do to ensure that that happens? Maybe um, I could come to you first, Emma, on that.
2: Sure. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, oh, Deborah.
0: Yeah, go. Chat.
2: Sorry. Uh, did you say that? Yeah, sorry. Um, I think yes, because we have to. Uh, for a long time I felt that transparency, pulling back the curtain on the work that we do, which is part of the in-depth piece, it's sharing the journalism, is yeah. is the way forward. We've built something called um, the verification unit uh, at NBC News Global, um, where we share and show our journalism as we go through deep investigations, most recently uh, one called 18 Bullets, where we investigated the death of David McAtee in Louisville, Kentucky, who was actually killed by police officers after George Floyd. Um, and we broke it down um, and shared our methodology, the technology we used, and it's done incredibly well and driven massive amounts of engagement from the platforms where we pushed it out. I think that is the future and we have to find ways to embed and integrate those levels of transparency, depth and, and forensics um, and authentic storytelling um, in all our journalism to connect with the audience because it's what they now demand um, in return for their trust.
0: James, how are you going to keep the attention of your audience once the crisis is over?
3: Yeah, we we have to, as I say, use the analytics, use the data that that is informing uh, our commissioning process in terms of what what the audience want. And I do think Deborah's spot on, actually, being more transparent about how we do things will certainly convince more people to trust us and invest in us. If, if people can see that the work we're doing is, to quote the, the Minister, um, the fourth emergency service, if we, if we can convince people that the journalism is of value um, and worth saving, protecting and enhancing, um, then I, th- I think we will we'll take people with us and we'll acquire new audiences.
0: Uh, Emma, how do you keep the flywheel spinning? Post the
1: crisis? I would just say, you know, we will absolutely maintain our commitment to um, good, solid, in depth reporting because, apart from anything else, it makes commercial sense. We know for a fact that people will pay for that type of journalism. So, journalism that's got lots of expertise in it, that's analytical, and I should add as well, that is constructive. We have to be able to offer our readers answers to you know, solutions to problems, as well as just outlining what the problems are. And the more we do that, the more context we put around our reporting, the more expertise we put in, the more analysis, the more we talk about people and, the you know, the people at the heart of stories, the more people will come back to read this. So it's, it's not just that we want to do this, I think we have to do it. So that's a
0: brilliantly optimistic place to end, actually, this morning. And uh, we've packed so much into this hour. I mean, it does show how difficult it is to squeeze what normally would be a 90 minute event into a 60 minute. But I, I hope those who are watching this morning have got what I've got out of this, which is an incredibly kind of stimulating um, discussion and some great insights around journalism. And frankly, I'm feeling kind of more optimistic um, about the journalism itself. As James was saying at the end, you know, investing in the actual production of journalism in the art and craft of journalism is obviously the way forward to build a sustainable industry and um, it's so fantastic to hear your perspectives this morning so thank you very much thank you to Nick as ever uh, with his extraordinary backdrop I'm told it's um, one of the cast of Friends Apartments Monica I don't know who knows? Uh, and also uh, thanks to Rasmus and um, also thanks uh, to Jesper and to Ma- uh, Madav. Sorry for putting them on the spot in the way that I did, but the technology just about worked. And thank you all to everyone on the call. Uh, do read the report and we'll see you next year for more. So thanks very much. Thank you for joining this podcast. Again, if you'd like to see the full details of the study, please visit our website, www edelman.co.uk